As we continue our Harmony of the Gospels, I want to uh, first read from Luke's Gospel. If you go to Luke chapter 21, Matthew and Mark are so similar on this passage that I'm going to only read Matthew this morning, but Luke is kind of distinctive and a little bit different. So we're going to read Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave, and those who are in the country must not enter the city, because these are days of vengeance, so that all things which are written will be fulfilled. Woe to those who are pregnant, and to those who are nursing babies in those days. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time the Gentiles are fulfilled. Turn over to Matthew chapter 24. We'll read verses 15 through 22. Matthew 24, verses 15 through 22. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we continually give you thanks and praise for the marvelous ministry that you continue to do in our hearts through your wonderful, inerrant, infallible word. We ask that you would teach us this morning. We pray that you would evoke in us and awaken in us proper understandings and proper emotions, proper volitional changes as we consider your word together. Holy Spirit, teach us. Have your way with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, first of all, I want to express my sincere thanks to God for you as a congregation. It's a great joy pastoring in a church that sincerely loves Jesus and sincerely submits itself to the Word of God. Certainly, our church is not a perfect church. There is no such thing short of heaven. But I see the Lord's grace operating in our midst, and it's especially evident when we come to places like this in preaching and teaching in the ministry of a church. Preaching through sections of prophecy in Scripture can be difficult because there's such a great amount of diverse opinions that arise in sections like these. 
you can read a hundred writers and find different elements that they will point to and different things that they'll connect as you come to a text like this. However, I have been pleased with this study that we've had together. I've come to appreciate these hard passages all the more while being here in community with all of you. Because it's oftentimes in the midst of the unknowns in the text that causes us to engage in a fuller and even more rich dialogue with one another. It forces us to search the scriptures. It it causes us to desire to know these things better and to understand them and to see how they fit together better within God's revealed word. Sometimes when you have so very much in common conversations can run a little short because you have so much in agreement with each other. Yeah, I mean, maybe you've experienced this before. I know that even our guys group has before where all of a sudden there's a visitor to the group and maybe he has some questions that all the rest of us agree on. But now all of a sudden the conversation is filled with discussion of a theological nature because this individual isn't at the same place as some of the rest of us. So I, I actually enjoy, have enjoyed this process through this hard passage here, the Olivet Discourse, because one, we have all of these different perspectives interacting with one another, and when we can discuss these things in humility and charity, it's a it's wonderful formula for Christian growth. And for the record, I'd like to state the obvious. I am a fellow learner. I'm a learner right alongside of you. I don't come here this morning having all of the answers, but we do come together knowing one who does, and we trust in him And we know that he is working all things according to his marvelous plan. But I feel that reality, that that reality that I'm a fellow learner all the more in passages such as these, as I scratch my head and work through many different things and come to certain conclusions and change my mind about things. That's part of the Christian life, and we're engaged in that together. Sometimes that's a scary thing from a preaching and teaching standpoint. I know I'm held accountable for the things that I teach. Sometimes it's a scary thing. But I do come to you today in humility, asking that the Lord would use His Word to encourage our hearts, to strengthen our resolve, and to redouble our joy in Christ. So in a sermon entitled, Great Tribulation, I'd like to organize our thoughts around four imperative statements, four commands that I'd like to kind of organize our thoughts around. I'll list all four of them here, and it'll take time with each one. Number one, watch for signs. As it relates to great tribulation, watch for signs. Two, flee from coming judgment. Two, flee from coming judgment. Three, prepare for great hardship. Prepare for great hardship. And fourth, lastly, pray for miraculous deliverance. Pray for miraculous deliverance. Let's look at that first imperative together. Watch for the signs. The disciples had asked Jesus when these things that he's spoken about would happen. Remember, Jesus had just made a statement regarding the temple that it was about to be destroyed. And they're asking Jesus, when will these things come to pass? A couple of the Gospels also add, when will the end of the age come? When will you come? When will you return? Now, Jesus doesn't give an absolute time stamp. It doesn't say something like A.D. 70, expect this, or sometime in the 2000s, expect this, that kind of idea. He doesn't provide us with that sort of time stamp. But he does provide 
a warning sign. He says in Luke, when you might see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, then know that her desolation, her destruction has come near. He says in Matthew and in Mark, when you might see the abomination of desolation, that which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place. After giving that sign, both Matthew and Mark have the little include this little parenthetical, let the reader understand. Let the reader understand. This is a comment, I believe, that's meant for us to be conversant with all of the scriptures. Now, certainly, we find ourselves reading that statement as we read it in Mark and Matthew. But I think that the reference here is to point our attention back to the Old Testament. In particular here, you just got done mentioning that this was prophesied through Daniel. The reference is most likely to Daniel 9.27, where there is a statement regarding this abomination causing desolation, a complete destruction that's coming, that's being decreed, and that this uh, huge amount of events are going to take place. Now, I mentioned last week that around 200 years before Jesus is even speaking, there was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes who set up an idol in the Holy of Holies, went into the temple, went into the Holy of Holies, and set up an idol there. So for many, we would have looked at that and said, this is exactly what Daniel prophesied, that there would be this abomination causing desolation set up in the holy place. And yet, Jesus, here 200 years later, speaks of something yet to come. And he pulls upon Daniel's vision and prophecy regarding this. It's a good example of a principle that we talked about in detail last week. That a fulfillment of prophecy can have multiple fulfillments. Some people have referred it to like peaks on mountains. And so you can have a nearer term fulfillment for a prophecy. And that has some amount of connection with a further range fulfillment of that prophecy as well. In this case, we see that there is destruction impending on the Old Testament temple. The temple itself would be obliterated. And with its destruction... The system of sacrifices would also come to an end. All of the old vestiges of revealed religion, the sacrifices, the feasts, the altar, the holy of holies, the priesthood, would physically be done away with, with this coming judgment upon Jerusalem. Understand that by the time that A.D. 70 came, which is an important date in history because it is when Rome did come in and conquer Jerusalem and destroy the temple, When that came about, remember, Jesus had already fulfilled what the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the priesthood were all pointing forward to. All of these practices, all those positions, all of those structures were meant to direct our attention to Jesus. They were just shadows of the coming blessed reality of Jesus. Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus lays down his life as a ransom for many. He's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. You see, all of those Old Testament things were supposed to be shadows of a coming reality, a coming Redeemer, a coming Rescuer. All those things should point our attention to Jesus. But quite the contrary was happening in Jesus' own day as the religious elite held on to the shadows and rejected the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. Blinded to His glory, They adamantly plotted his demise, his murder. The Jews rejected Christ. And so God the Father would bring judgment upon them, 
a massive destruction was coming their way in the form of the Roman army. Philip Ryken, though, says it so well. Listen to this. In the end, the whole old system of temple sacrifice had to be destroyed, while those who defended it perished. Jesus had offered the one and only once-for-all sacrifice for all the sins of all of his people. Once he died and rose again, the old temple in Jerusalem was no longer the dwelling place of God, and God would not allow it to stand over against the true temple of Christ. It had to be torn down, not by Christians, but by the Romans, who were serving as instruments of divine justice. Now, I said last time that one of the difficulties of this text is finding a specific element in those events around AD 70 that would connect something to an abomination of desolation, some sort of thing in connection with the holy place that would provide the Jews with a sign of this coming destruction and for what happened there in AD 70. And as a result, I said that I think that maybe the fulfillment of this really happens in the future still yet to come. Now, I will just mention that some commentators argue that if this abomination that's being spoken of here has a connection to AD 70, then perhaps you could just argue that the standards of the Roman army, the all of the placards and flags and banners that they would bring into the city upon destroying it and set these things up, they themselves could have sufficed as the abomination that caused desolation. They surely brought with them incredible destruction upon Jerusalem and upon the temple, such that, as Jesus said, not one stone left upon another. And if you remember with me, we looked at some of those pictures, right, at how massive those stones really were and what an incredible fulfillment of that prophecy came to pass. The only thing I'll point out to that sort of argument that makes it not be uh, super compelling for me is that if that was to serve as the warning when, when Rome enters into Jerusalem and destroys the temple and then sets up their placards and their banners right there on, on the mount, if that was to serve as the warning, it seems like it's a little too late. <laughs> uh, the destruction would have already been there. They've already dismantled the temple and put up... Uh, their guard there, it seems like as if it might be a little late as a helpful indicator as to when you ought to get out of Jerusalem. However, at least at present, no other element in recorded history at that time really fits very well with a specific identification of an abomination of desolation that might be set up in the holy place. It doesn't mean that nothing happened. It just means that at least nothing is recorded that I can really point to. Luke seems content with the idea that here's the sign that Jesus was giving whenever the army circles around Jerusalem. That's Luke's idea here. He says, here's your fitting sign of coming, looming destruction. When you're in the city and you see a massive military amassing outside of the city walls, that's when it's time to leave the city. This indeed did occur in AD 70 when General Titus, who is the son of the emperor, son of Vespasian, the emperor, he comes to Jerusalem, lays siege to the city over five months, then breaches its walls and destroys the temple. Luke focuses on that element. If you read Luke's gospel in and of itself, it seems that all that Jesus is talking to, at least up until the end of this, this portion, is just recent coming events. And what, as we look back with the, you know, the advantage of history, AD 70 seems to fit very, very well with everything that Luke is saying. But it's Matthew and Mark that seem to connect those ideas and those events of A.D. 70, which still hadn't come yet for them, so they're still looking forward to that, 
but with a further reaching fulfillment of this prophecy as, as well. And again, to further describe that, you just go back to my sermon from last time and you can listen to me describe that in depth. But I believe what's going on here is Luke is focusing on the near fulfillment where Matthew and Mark have the near fulfillment in mind, but have a further reaching fulfillment in mind as well. You see, there's signs not only regarding the approaching judgment on Jerusalem right there in AD 70, but the approaching judgment at the end of all of history. AD 70 serves as a pre-fillment of a fulfillment that is still yet to come. An ultimate climactic tribulation that is still yet to come. Should that be the case, again, as all of these sorts of passages are, there's great debate regarding what would the abomination of desolation be in regards to the end of history. Now, I'll just propose that I think among the, the options and solutions that have been proposed, I have a kinship for the one that connects this with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which there describes. So let me read just the first four verses of that chapter. Again, First uh, and 2 Thessalonians have a lot to say about the end. This is what we hear the Apostle Paul saying. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Interesting here, he's picking up on the same concern that Jesus had in the Olivet Discourse. Don't be overly jittery. Don't believe any little wind of thing coming your way that, oh, the Messiah is here and start acting in strange ways. Again, Paul's saying, uh, calling them to some steadiness here. Verse 3, he continues, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. This description, which is often referred to as a description of the Antichrist, I think could fit the bill quite well. Again, I leave this to your continued discussion and consideration. Again, I believe that this fits the interpretive paradigm that we've set forward from last week. These soon-coming events in AD 70 and the destruction of the temple and the lives of Jesus' immediate followers right then would give an indication by analogy of what will happen at the culmination of history. So what they're about to go through gives us a glimpse into, gives us a foreshadowing of events that are still yet to come. And as I demonstrated last time, we see that pattern in prophecy and fulfillment in the scriptures. A great host of people, though, might not have taken Jesus' words very seriously, but they would regret it in A.D. 70 when Rome would indeed come into the town and wreak havoc upon it and cause death of many. But so it will be at the end of history. Many will scoff at what the scriptures proclaim regarding the end. But the book that was right regarding the destruction of the temple in AD 70 is also the book that's right regarding the end of history. For that matter, the book that's right about all things is right about the things that will happen at the end as well. The same God who spoke the world into being... The same God who brought about a worldwide flood destroying everything but Noah and his family and the animals on the ark is the same God who will bring everything to its conclusion through great catastrophe then followed by an incredible recreation. And that's what we look forward to as Christians. 
Understand the signs. Watch for the signs. Secondly, flee from coming judgment. Once you notice the sign, then flee. The command is given here to run. Now, there are times in scriptures when it's not only wise, but a matter of obedience that we flee. Indeed, it's true that there are times when we are called scripturally to make our stand, to stand firm, to stand immovable, to hold our ground without budging. But it's also the case that there are certain times that call for running, that call for fleeing. You see, while being in Christ provides us with every confidence in this world because we know that we're, where we're going in the world to come, that confidence doesn't mean throwing away all caution and all ideas of self-defense or preservation, throwing all those things to the wind. That does not mean that. J.C. Ryle says it this way, He's not to be ashamed to use reasonable means to provide for his personal safety, listen to this, when no good is to be done by dying at his post. The true martyrs are not always those who court death and are in a hurry to be beheaded or burned. There are times when it shows more grace to be quiet and wait and pray and watch for opportunities than to defy our adversaries and rush into battle. It's like, uh, I like the statement that's made here, you know, the captain goes down with his ship, that whole classic thing. That makes a whole lot of sense if you need somebody at the wheel while everyone else is getting off the ship to safety. But it doesn't make much sense if you're the only one on the ship and you can jump off and try to live, right? So similarly here, the scriptures don't call us to foolheartedly die for no reason. We ought to preserve life, and that includes our own even looking out for the safety of ourselves, if it doesn't mean any good for any other person that by laying down our life. Now, I would just say that we can err on either side of this matter. We can run when we should stand, and we can stand when we should run. But there is a time for both. There's a time to run, and there's a time to stand. Ecclesiastes says it this way, there's an occasion for everything and a time for every activity under heaven. So Jesus explains when it is the time to flee. He says, you must flee When you see this, he tells them, when you see this sign, you must flee. He tells them, let the ones in Judea flee to the mountains. Luke says, let the ones in the midst of the city get out. Let the ones who are in the country not go in. Let the ones who are on the housetops not go down to enter, to take things out of the house. Let one in the field not turn back to go and get his cloak. What Jesus is saying here is, when you see this sign, leave immediately. Escape to the mountains. Don't look back. If you're out in the field, don't return to get a jacket. If you're resting on your rooftop, don't go down into your house to get your belongings. Just go. He says, there's no time to pack. Just leave. That's the urgency that's being given here. When you see this thing, get out. I had us read this morning, because this instruction kind of makes me Made me think of Genesis 19. We see this instruction being given to Lot and his family. You guys need to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because if you stay, fire and brimstone are coming your way. They're given just enough time to escape out of the city. And then the Lord fires down, uh, brings down fire and brimstone upon the city. And we're told that as they looked back over this, after it was all said and done, Remember, Lot's wife looks back right away and turns into a pillar of salt. But after this is all said and done, they look down and there we see just smoke arising. Like a big furnace is all that's left. 
You see, the appropriate action in that case was to run, to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah. There are reasons given for our running. I don't know about you, but oftentimes I don't run without reason. We act with purpose behind our actions. You got out of bed this morning and you came here. You had some motivating purpose. Otherwise, you would have stayed in bed or done something else with your time. If there's a reason for your movement, if there's a reason for you to walk from one place to another, there certainly has to be purpose if you begin running between one place and another. Oftentimes, we have to be given very good reason to run because it takes a lot of energy and it isn't always enjoyable. But with the proper motivation, that energy is spent and hardly noticed, i.e., enter a lion into the sanctuary. I don't think we'll have any trouble figuring out how to run as quickly as we can away from the beast. Well, this all is a fulfillment of specific prophecies. Jesus is providing his followers with some instruction. Should they wish to stick around when this judgment is falling because they feel some loyalty to Jerusalem or to the temple, Jesus says, don't. Don't feel any loyalty to any of this. Leave. Get out of Dodge. This is all fulfillment of prophecy against a rebellious nation that had turned their back against the Messiah. They rejected Jesus as Savior, and so they would meet him as their judge. He says, leave. Days of vengeance are upon them. The judgment that's being poured out against Jerusalem would be something that anyone found within its walls would see that destruction. It wasn't directed specifically at believers or a believing remnant that was still present there within the city, but believers, should they stick around, would be affected by the coming judgment. So they're given an opportunity. Jesus provides them with a sign. He says, if you see this, and then he gives them a command, get out of the city. Flee from the wrath to come. Should we be faced with unavoidable persecution for our stand in Christ, from which we cannot reasonably escape by means acceptable to God, then we need in those moments, should that be your situation, to pray that the Lord would allow us to stand firm and even if it need be, seal our own testimony with our blood, as many Christian martyrs have done in the past and are doing even today. However, should the means be available... There is certainly nothing wrong with working to preserve our own, our own lives in service to our king. Paul is merely one example, but he serves as a very good example because we have so much recorded about his own journeys, his own missionary activity in the book of Acts. He was no stranger to persecution. He had persecution of the most extreme sort, labors, imprisonments, beaten kinds without number, often in danger of death. Five times he received 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. Once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked. He was constantly in danger. He experienced hunger, thirst, many sleepless nights, cold and exposure. And on top of all this, Paul says, I experienced the ongoing concern for all the churches. On top of all those things, my concern is not my own self, but the churches that I'm ministering to. He courageously stood his ground for the gospel of Jesus Christ and he endured whatever might be thrown his way. However, when possible, he also evaded his enemies in order to continue his ministry for Christ. He used discernment and prayer in his missionary journeys. He was certainly not afraid to travel to cities that would be antagonistic to the gospel. 
because he kept finding antagonism wherever he went. And we know that he wasn't concerned even about going back to cities where he had been persecuted. That's one of the most amazing parts is, you know, he goes into one city and he talks about being stoned once. He's stoned in a city. He leaves from that city, goes on. And then as he's traveling back through, he goes back through the same city that had left him for dead. It stoned him outside of the city thinking he was dead. But here he is. He's still alive. And he comes back to that city. We see that Paul is not afraid of persecution. He dealt with it. He handled it by God's grace. But we also see him being let down through the walls of Damascus by a basket so he could escape out of the city before some enemies would get to him. We see that when he's arrested, he appeals to Caesar because he's a Roman citizen. And when they find that out, they're kind of scared. And he can actually appeal to Caesar. They already started to mistreat him. And he appeals to Caesar and says, I want my day in court with Caesar. And so off to Caesar, he eventually does go. You see... He's wise. He's discerning. He's making use of resources at his disposal. Had he not been a Roman citizen, he couldn't have made that appeal. But being a Roman citizen, he does make the appeal. And that is even used by God as a platform by which the gospel then comes to Rome. We also see him when he's on board the ship trying to come across to Rome. And there's this massive storm that comes on the sea. And Paul starts giving instructions to everyone regarding what they ought to do in order to preserve their lives. He says, if you do it this way, then we're going to die. If you do it this way, we're going to stay alive. He's providing them with practical helps on what they ought to do. The Lord had revealed to him. You see, here's the point. Paul was willing to die in service to Christ, and we know that because he did. He did eventually die in service to Christ. But he wasn't rushing into it. He wasn't just throwing his life away. He saw that to die and to go be with Christ was very much better. But as long as he was afforded opportunity here on this earth, he saw it as a ministry to others. And so he fought for that ongoing opportunity. He would take reasonable action to preserve his life in ministry. You see, there's a time to run when it's obedience to God. It is not when it's in disobedience to God. That's not the time to run. I.e. Jonah running away from God's assignment. That would be the opposite situation. But there are times when God calls us to run and in such cases we must. Well, where do we run to? Run! Flee! Well, certainly you're, away, you're, you're running away from vengeance. You're running away from this judgment. But where are you running to? You're running away from wrath. Where are you running to? You're running to safety. They're called to run to security, to a place of solid ground, to a place of protection. Run to the mountains, Jesus says. Don't look back. Don't grab stuff because the stuff's just going to weigh you down. You've got to get out of here. You need to leave it behind. Leave all cumbersome burdens behind. What does it matter if you have a huge 50-inch flat screen TV, but you're dead? What does it matter? Leave it behind. You don't need any of it. Run out of the city. Should you stay there, you'll see destruction and death. Should you stay in the city of destruction, you will see destruction and death. And so it is to this very day. Should you reject Jesus as Savior, you will meet him as judge. A meeting with Jesus is inescapable. The only question is whether you will come to him while it's still the day of salvation. Or if you'll ignore his call to life and find yourself in the end in the hands of a holy and justly angry God. Jesus tells them, flee from the coming wrath. That's the message of the gospel. Flee from the wrath to come. Your only hope is to find where God's judgment has already fallen and the price has been paid in full. And the only place for that is in Jesus.
You have to go to the cross. You must cry out to Jesus because only those who are found in Christ have their debt paid in full, have their sins forgiven, and are granted Jesus' perfect righteousness. Be warned, you cannot ultimately run from God. So, you must run to Him. And what's so glorious is that God provides the means by which you are running to Him results in salvation. Salvation from the coming day of judgment. Jesus alone is He who is, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says, rescues us from the wrath to come. Jesus is He who rescues us from the wrath to come. And there's no time to waste, dear friends. Now, here in Houston, the typical natural disasters that we encounter, we usually have some amount of forewarning before they come. You know, the biggest one we interact with is that of the hurricane. And hurricanes develop some distance out at sea, and they travel over some period of days, and we all watch those weather maps and all of the projections about where it could possibly land, and there's guesses and predictions and all of the rest. And with modern meteorological technology, we usually have a few days to prepare to weather the storm or to get out of town before the big hurricane hits. Some of you have done maybe one or both of those things at different times. Jesus here provides a warning sign about the coming destruction, akin to listening or watching to a weather report. Yeah, for some, there will be that sort of advance notice. There will be that sort of warning. And you can act at that moment. However, may I just remind you that there are other places in the world in which a disaster like a tsunami hits, in which there's not a minuscule or of any advance notice at all, even with all of our modern technological advances. We have to remember that a great many people find that time is up without any advanced notice. I remember that while I was at seminary, my preaching professor, um, I, had, I had him for a preaching class, and then I had gone up for a summer uh, term up in Fort Worth. And when I was there, I noticed that there was a notice on one of the walls and it was about a memorial service that they were having for my preaching professor. He had passed away. And I, I was trying to figure out how on earth that was possible. And he was like, guys in his late 30s, early 40s, he was really super in shape. I just I didn't understand what had happened. And I came to find out he was a single guy, and he was in his apartment. He was watching TV, had a bowl of popcorn on his lap. He died from a brain aneurysm. They found him dead, popcorn still on his lap, hadn't moved, just like that, was gone. Do you think that morning he thought, you know, I think I might die today while I'm eating some popcorn and watching TV. I can guarantee you, nobody wants to die watching TV. It's just, that, that doesn't sound fun at all. So I tell you, I guarantee that's not what he was thinking that morning. I wonder for us too, though, how much do we take for granted the life that we've been given, that our hearts are beating, that our lungs are breathing. We can die at any moment without any notice. And so while there's a warning sign being presented about a future coming moment, the real reality is none of us are guaranteed another moment. Are you ready to meet Jesus? Right now, while it is still called today, you have an opportunity for salvation. Will you turn and run to Him now and flee from the coming wrath? Third point. Prepare for great hardship. Prepare for great hardship. Here Jesus speaks about a great tribulation that is coming. Now certainly what Jerusalem was about to experience in AD 70 was something extremely horrific. 
But Jesus speaks about a tribulation which this world has never experienced, nor ever will. Never experienced it before, nor will this world ever experience a tribulation like that which is to come. This speaks to a greater tribulation yet to come. It is true that all Christians encounter trials and hardships. Some experience more extreme versions of tribulation. And some of that depends on where you live. And some of that depends on when you live. Depending on where you live and when you live might make a huge impact on the amount of specific tribulation and persecution you might encounter. Now, we know that all those who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. So we'll all have in common that all Christians suffer persecution. If you're in him, you will suffer persecution. But there are some more extreme cases, depending on where and when you live. So it is with the days that were about to come up in AD 70, should you have been living at that time in that place, great tribulation was coming. And so it might be for many, maybe even some in this room, should the end of history culminate. Some of us might live in days in which these tribulations are spoken of. The final tribulation will be incomparable. Revelation 7.14 also uses that same phrase, great tribulation. Yeah, that connect point. Great tribulation, Revelation 7.14, and then right here in Jesus' Olivet Discourse. And what do we read in Revelation? Well, we're given a glimpse of the judgments that are yet to come. They come in these forms of seals being broken, trumpets being blasted, and bowls being poured out. But as we see seals, trumpets, and bowls, there's a huge amount of judgments being poured out. Just a quick summary of the things that are stated there. Wars, famines, pestilence, death, the sun darkens, the moon turns to blood, stars fall to the earth, hail and fire falls from the sky, huge amounts of vegetation and animals die, plagues of sores uh, cover the earth, seas and rivers turn to blood, the sun begins scorching men with its heat, a great earthquake comes through and splits cities apart. We're told here, earthquakes that have never been experienced before. Darkness will be so extreme at points that people will gnaw their tongues from the pain and agony of the complete and utter blackness that they find themselves in. And on top of all of that, we're told that huge hailstones will rain out of the sky, we're told weighing around 100 pounds each. Can you imagine 100-pound hailstones coming out of the sky? We're told that people are going to want to crawl underneath mountains to try to shield them from the coming glory of this judgment. And when Jesus arrives, it'll be like nothing we've ever seen. It'll be like taking every single natural disaster you could ever imagine, ramping them up to an extreme that's never been experienced, and then pouring them all out in rapid succession or even in overlapping succession. Take all those natural disaster movies, you know, all the... All these big things, and then just wrap them all together. We're talking about, you know, you take those extremely intense plagues that Egypt experienced. They're nothing compared to what's going to come. The tribulation that's prophesied will be difficult enough for an individual. So you can imagine why Jesus then says his continual care for individuals amidst all of this. He goes, it's going to be especially difficult for those who are caring for little ones. Those who either have little ones still within their bellies or those who have little ones that they're nursing. What kind of hardships are going to be expected? He says, great distress. There will be utter need throughout the land. There will be 
you know, desire for things and it won't be provided. They won't be there. There'll be wrath poured out on the people. There'll be death that's brought by sword by those armies, by the wars that are going on. There'll be captivity going on. Jerusalem's going to be trampled. Again, he says here, tribulation as has never been experienced, nor ever will. As I thought about that, I thought just quickly, you know, Jesus has particular concern about those who are with babies at this time. It makes me think of the particular difficulties that Mary was beset with, with the first coming of Jesus, right? She being pregnant during those days as a result of what the Holy Spirit had done in giving her Jesus inside of her. We know that she was betrothed, and how about trying to prove to your fiancé that you hadn't been unfaithful, right, as you start to show signs of pregnancy? How would you ever be able to convince them of that? We see God's graciousness in providing revelation to Joseph so he wouldn't abandon her, but would stay by her side, keeping her a virgin until the birth of Jesus. We see all kinds of hardships so that she would encounter. Remember, they would have to travel to Bethlehem while she's, we're told, being great with child. So she is quite advanced in her pregnancy. And this is itself a marvelous fulfillment of prophecy that they would travel to Bethlehem and that Jesus would be born there because that's exactly what Old Testament had prophesied. But isn't traveling while pregnant hard enough? But can you imagine not having an automobile and driving on nice level roads? Can you imagine riding on a beast of burden for many miles while being great with child? What would that be like? To top it off, when arriving in Bethlehem, because there's so much traveling going on and people are all retreating to the cities that they're supposed to go to, to, to for the census, we're told that there's no room there for Mary and Joseph. There's not a holiday inn at every corner that they can make use of. And so Mary gives birth in less than ideal situation. She's away from home and she's without a great many comforts. Due to space issues, Jesus is laid in an animal's feeding trough. I like to emphasize that because I think sometimes we forget that. We hear manger and we just think, oh, that's so cutesy and nice, you know. This is where animals ate their food. Is that where you want to even touch, much less lay your baby? That's where Jesus is laid. Then when Jesus isn't very old, some wise men come from the east to worship him. But through this chain of events, King Herod finds out about him being a jealous man that he is, decides to try to kill every baby two years of age and younger which causes Mary and Joseph to, again, have to hit the road and travel to Egypt in the middle of the night until Herod would die before they could travel back to that area and then go eventually to Nazareth where Jesus would grow up, itself also a fulfillment of prophecy. What's so incredible is that all of this would happen while Mary is pregnant. Now, you understand that all those difficulties and stuff become more difficult, traveling like that, having to do all those things while pregnant or while having a, a young child. So when Jesus says, when this great tribulation, which never, no one has ever experienced, experienced, comes, it'll be especially difficult for those with babies. The fourth thing I want to mention this morning is that how do we respond to all of this? Well, we pray for miraculous deliverance. Pray for miraculous deliverance. We prepare for hardship, but simultaneously we pray for deliverance. I believe there's two reasons that prompt us to pray. There's two things that really cause us as Christians to hit our knees. And there are two things that we can pray for in regards to this. First of all, Jesus says to pray regarding the beginning of this tribulation. He says that the timing of this judgment will have adverse consequences on people. If it comes during the winter, 
months. It will be more adverse. Fleeing from your home to the hills will be especially difficult. In that area of the world, the winter months are also the rainy season. We've kind of experienced some of that for ourselves, haven't we, here recently? These cold days have been coupled with rain. Can you imagine what that would be like, again, without cars, without umbrellas, without nice places to live? If you just had to leave your house, you have nowhere to go, you're running into the mountains. Can you imagine how difficult that would be in and of itself? But then combine on top of that a bunch of rain, trying to care for little ones, all the rest, would make finding shelter all the more crucial, all the more difficult. Jesus says, pray regarding when this might come. But also, we might pray knowing that God will bring the tribulation to an end. Just as He starts it, He'll bring it to an end. Praying that God would bring this judgment to an end. Jesus says, should that tribulation continue further than what God would allow, no flesh would be able to survive. Every soul would perish. Everyone would die. Now, we go to God in prayer for two reasons. One, it's because we recognize that He's sovereign. When we say that God is sovereign, we mean that God is able. He is in control. He is King. He is Lord. The tribulation that's to come will commence in accordance with God's sovereignty, just as all tribulations that have already happened have commenced with God's, in accordance with God's sovereignty. Tribulation will then cease in accordance with God's sovereignty. It starts when He says, and it stops when He says. The tribulation, trials, difficulties, hardships, are not a hiccup in God's plan, but part of God's plan. We pray to God because we know that He is able to deal with this. These are things are happening in accordance with His all-wise plan. But we also pray not only because God is able, but we also pray because God cares. God is compassionate. You, know, you wouldn't talk to someone about something that they were unable to help you with, right? I mean... I'm not going to you know, go to Steve Kemper and ask him to you know, just have the government remove all taxation. He doesn't have that power. I mean, it's like, why talk to him about that? He can't, he can't affect that at all. But similarly, even if I was to talk to someone who might have some power, if they don't care at all, then again, why even spend the time? Why waste my breath? Why go through all the repercussions of this? But this is what's so glorious. The reason why we pray to God is because he is able, he is supremely able If there's anyone who is able, he is able in the truest sense. He is all-powerful. He is able to do whatever he pleases. So we go to him knowing that he's able, but we also go to him knowing that he cares. Because if God is all-powerful but he didn't care, why would you pray? But we pray because he's able. He's sovereign. He's in control. If he wasn't in control, you wouldn't go to him. But since he is in control, you do go to him. And because he cares, you know he listens. And you know that your breath isn't being wasted. We pray knowing that God is sovereign. And we pray knowing that God is compassionate. We're told here in the text that he shortens the days of the tribulation for the elect's sake. The tribulation ends because God is concerned for his children. Note, there must be an elect presence there with the tribulation in order for him to say, I'm going to cut short the tribulation for the sake of who? The elect. So the elect must be present in order for him to say, I'm going to cut it short for the elect's sake. Now, you use the word elect. It's a word that all of a sudden just kind of pops off the page at us here. J.C. Ryle says, The subject of election is no doubt deep and mysterious. Unquestionably, it has often sadly been perverted and abused. But the misuse of truths must not prevent us from using them. Rightly used and fenced with proper cautions, election is a doctrine 
full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort. Can I say that again? When this is rightly used and fenced with proper cautions, election is a doctrine, a teaching, full of sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I encountered election and the whole idea of predestination, I have to admit I was not filled with sweet, pleasant, and unspeakable comfort. It didn't fit with what I thought this world was set up by. But it has definitely come to be that sort of thing in my heart and mind. I listened to a message by uh, an individual who was teaching at a Christian classical conference this past week. And the speaker mentioned how strange it is that we feel the necessary uh, the necessity to provide qualifications whenever we talk about the fear of God, the importance of man fearing God. Like, you start to talk about that, and he said, instantly, everyone feels the pressure. They'll go, now, by fear, I want to make sure that I understand that, you know, qualify what I mean by fear. He explains that a lot of the issue why we feel like we have to do that is because we've fallen so far from esteeming God properly. When's the last time you thought about and felt the awesome grandeur of God and were led to utter humility and brokenness because God is so majestic, God is so big, God is so powerful? Do you revere Him from the deepest part of your soul? When the Bible says, fear God, do you find yourself saying, absolutely, absolutely I ought to fear God? He said it's interesting that we don't feel a commensurate need to qualify a statement like, love God, <laughs> or experience the mercy of God. Like, you know, those kind of statements, you don't see a lot of people going, now, by that, I want to make sure I qualify that God is also a righteous God and a, a God of holy anger and wrath. Like, he says, a lot of times we don't feel the necessity to qualify God's love, but we feel it whenever we talk about fearing God or talking about God's judgment or wrath. Why do we do that? Why do we feel that? Well, I think it's the reason why is because each time and culture has its own pitfalls doctrinally. Perhaps centuries ago, God's transcendence was so emphasized that his imminence, his nearness was lost. So God is other. He's out there, but he's not here close and near to us. Perhaps we've almost flip-flopped that today. And typically when people talk about God, it's all about his nearness. He's your buddy. He's your friend. And it's almost like we've lost this idea of his otherness of his holiness, of his grandeur, of his greatness. I need to see it on this time of year. Because while not many people have much time for Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, and not many people want to think much about Jesus' second coming, everyone seems to have some place for Christmas. Maybe it's because Jesus is a baby. You know, they want to interact with Jesus as a baby. And just as a baby. They don't want to acknowledge even the songs that they sing. Like Jesus is Lord at his birth. They don't want to acknowledge that element of Jesus. They think that they can keep him contained as a baby. Because it's not as daunting to them. But remember that that baby is fully man and fully God. And Lord at his birth. And that baby who came to earth and yes, proved God's love and nearness and his imminence, that he's here with us and he cares about us, that same Jesus did die, did rise, and will come again to judge the quick and the dead. Well, in mainstream evangelicalism, election has definitely been a doctrine that's fallen out of favor by, with many. 
The word itself has fallen out of customary use. But this is no surprise. It's kind of a sign, I think, of our days. Whenever people begin to de-emphasize God's power and position, it leads to a lessening of the belief regarding his sovereignty, which then allows more room for human autonomy, which leads to further dialogue regarding what actually happens in salvation. When God's power and prerogatives are lessened, man's power and prerogatives fill the gap. Or probably better said, this is probably really the way that it actually goes logically, man who wishes to think of himself more highly than he ought to think then pushes down God's sovereignty to exalt himself. Now I share that speaker's irritation that we have to define and qualify statements which should be able to just stand on their own. We should be able to read that text and say, yes, God just shortened the days for the sake of his elect. And that should be able to just stand and just be there. And yes, that's what a, a Christian is an elect person. Elect, chosen. A Christian is a chosen person by God. That should be able to just stand. That's what the word means. That's what it says. It's very, very clear. Now, because the doctrine of election has suffered from so much misinformation and so many straw men have been proposed and erected, I have to be clear about what I mean by election. And what I don't mean by election, many times learning is mostly first by unlearning. (laughs) You have to unlearn the false characterization that people have provided you or you yourself have come up with in order to then learn what is true and right. Once we unlearn everything, then we can begin to learn. Let me just say a couple quick things about election. Election itself is a subset of God's sovereignty. Can you say that? If God is sovereign, then he's sovereign over every molecule in the universe. If there is even one molecule, one atom in the universe that's not under his control, then God's not in control of everything. You can't say God is all-powerful, in control of all things, and then go, well, except for these things. God's not in control of those things. That doesn't work. He's either all-powerful and in control of everything, or he's not. God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably to ordain all things whatsoever comes to pass. Right from our confessional statement. All things. He ordains all things. Does that include who he saves? Absolutely. Otherwise, he doesn't ordain all things. He ordains some things. But God ordains all things. So you see, election is just a subset of the idea that God is big. And he's bigger than everything. And he's in control of everything. You see, election is an expression of God's compassion. Remember, God was under no obligation to save anyone. And remember, if God does not act, no one is saved. We must keep those contextualizing statements present. God is under no obligation to save anyone. So you can't say it's unfair that God doesn't save anyone. He's under no obligation to save anyone. If he saves ten people, he didn't have to save those ten people. You can't say that's unjust because justice means we all go to hell. That's justice. Fairness is we get what we deserve. You can't use a question of whether or not that's fair with God because fair would be we all get punishment. But God is gracious and merciful. And he's extended that mercy and grace, not because we deserve it, because he wanted to. You can't use categories of fairness and justice when you talk about this. Because God is doing something gracious and magnanimous. 
See, election is an expression of compassion. Here's a couple of cautions, though. The fact that God has chosen a people to save does not remove the fact that the means by which salvation occurs is repentance and faith. How is a person saved? They repent and believe. They repent and believe. Should you not repent, should you not believe, then you are not saved. And you are also, therefore, not elect. Man is responsible before God for his actions, and he's called to repent and believe. If he refuses that, then he'll receive the punishment that he's due. Should he repent and believe, then he'll be forgiven and adopted and be granted all the privileges that come with adoption. Also, remember, God's election, while quite known to him, is not known to us. There are a great many things that God has chosen not to reveal to us, and this is one of those. So it doesn't help us any to speculate about what has God elect and what has he not. Actually, it does quite a lot of harm. Knowing that God has chosen people to save fuels ministry, though. Because if God hadn't, there'd be no hope. You see, the, the, the pitfall we fall into with this matter is that we think that without God, we can save ourselves. But we can't. The scriptural identification of us is that we're dead in our sins and trespasses. We're not in a position of neutrality, where we're now weighing the options, pros and cons, between choosing God and not, following Jesus and not. We're dead. We're already under the power of the wicked one. We're enslaved to do his will. What needs to happen is for a miracle, you need to be granted new life. There would be no hope if God didn't do this. This is what fuels ministry. If God hadn't chosen people, there would be no hope of anyone being saved. But since he has chosen to extend mercy and grace to some, we have hope that people will be brought to Christ by the Holy Spirit. This is exactly what fueled Paul's ministry. This is what he says in 2 Timothy 2.10. For this reason, listen, for this reason, this is the same guy who went through all those trials and persecution. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those that are chosen. For the sake of the elect. So that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. Now, we go, yeah, but we don't even know who God elects, so why even talk about it? I mean, that's a, that's a reasonable question. Well, if it's a mystery, then why even bring it up? I'm glad you asked. First of all, note that there is some mystery to everything we know. Every area of human inquiry, there is mystery attached to it. Not only do we not know everything, we do not know everything about even one thing. Say it again. Not only do we not know everything, but we don't know everything even about one thing. I'm amazed as I get to dabble into chemistry here at the school. And it's always fascinating to me as, you know, I keep digging deeper and deeper, smaller and smaller, with kind of considerate matter, stuff that makes up the universe. And no matter how deep they go, there's always like then still mystery. There's still, oh, we don't, yeah, that's like that, but we don't know why. And that's like that, but we don't know why. Oh, hey, we made a discovery, but now we found this and we don't know why. You know, that's all it is. Human inquiry is always filled with mystery. Not only do we not know everything about election, we don't know everything about any particular thing. So to just say that there's mystery, so why even talk about it, isn't helpful. We talk about a whole lot of things that have mystery. As a matter of fact, everything we talk about, we don't have full and complete knowledge of. It's unavoidable here. Here's another reason why we teach election. Because it's in the Bible. The word is here. We have to deal with it. 
even someone who isn't Calvinistic in thinking, even someone who is a staunch supporter of free will, you have to deal with the passage. I'm not saying that there aren't people that try to deal with the passage. There are. But just the point is, the word is in the Bible. So we do have to intersect with it and deal with it. What is it? What's meant here by it? So that's another reason why we teach it. Third reason we teach it, because it ensures that God receives all the glory. You see, a Christian is certainly someone who seeks Christ. We do. We do seek Christ. But we only do so because he first sought us. We seek Christ because he first sought us. Another way to say it, First John, we love him because he first loved us. You see, God's the initiator in the drama. God's the pursuer. God's the rescuer. God's the savior. Not us. You see what a different picture is presented if now I'm the chief character in the drama? I think that's quite often the problem. We think we're center stage when God is. It's all about him. He's telling a marvelous story. He's displaying his glory throughout the universe that he created. There is only one working in salvation. That's God. God and God alone. He gets all the glory. He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the author and finisher of salvation. He is the Alpha and the Omega. We don't save ourselves and we don't help God in saving ourselves. God saves. That's what salvation is. We're not flopping about, about to drown, as R.C. Sproul would say. We're dead, comatose, in the bottom of the ocean. And God has to reach down, grab us out of the water, put us on the shore, breathe the breath of life into our lungs, and bring us to life. That's the way the Bible describes it. You have to be born again. You who are dead were made alive in Christ. You who were enslaved to sin are now made slaves to righteousness. You've been rescued. You've been saved. We teach election because it brings all glory to God. He receives all the praise. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. God saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. God had to give me sight. God had to give me life. We also teach election because it provides blessed comfort to those who are in Christ. You see, if salvation hinged on me, then I would never be saved because I would never come to him in the first place. That's the first point of point. And I think that that sort of humility needs to rest within our bodies and souls and minds. If it were not for God, I would not be saved. If it were not for God, I would still be lost and dead. But let's speak hypothetically for just a moment. Let's say hypothetically I could come into a state of right standing with God by my own volition, by my own actions, by something inside of me, which is impossible, but let's hypothetically believe it for a second. If that was the case, then it would also be possible for me to lose that right standing with God. If I can work my way in, I can also work my way out. Or put another way, if I did something that pleased God, that made him now love me enough to give his son for me, then I could also do something that would disappoint him and cause him to hate me and then disown me. But since... This is how the Bible describes it in Romans 5. Since God loved me while I was an enemy. God loved me while I was dead. God loved me while I was the worst rebel that ever lived. God loved me then. He gave His Son for me while I was a sinner through and through. That I know that my position in Christ is not based on something that I do, but something He has done. That's where security comes in the Christian life. There is otherwise no security. For at any one moment, I could do something that disappoints him. 
I'm certain that all of us have experienced this in human relationships where maybe we've done something as a result of that person has loved us or loved us more and then we've done something wrong and then they stopped loving us or didn't love us as much and we've felt the ebb and flow of that and maybe several relationships that you've had. Hopefully in Christian relationships we've learned from the love that we've experienced from God how to extend that sort of love and grace and mercy to one another regardless of how they act. But I'm sure we've all experienced the other sort of love and it's horrible, isn't it? It's wretched. Any one moment it can be stripped away from you. But that's not how God loves. God loves because he's loving. He doesn't love because I'm lovable. He loves because he's loving. Because I'm not lovable. But he's loving and his love is transforming. And he's changing me and he's molding me and he's shaping me. But my confidence rests not in some good in me, but his goodness. One other thing. We teach election also because... It helps us maintain a proper perspective of our task as ambassadors for Christ. Our success in evangelism is not gauged in the number of converts because we recognize ultimately that we can't change somebody's heart. I can't reach into any more than I can cause someone's heart to start beating again. You know, by my hand. I can't do that. Thanks to me, can. I can't do that. You can do it indefinitely anyway. None of us can reach in spiritually and change a person's heart. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Our duty is to speak the truth in love. I think this is so helpful to the church and to our local ministry. It prevents us from getting into gimmicks and, and tactics to try to make people make decisions in that sort of fashion. Our job is to make much of Christ, to, to proclaim the excellencies of God, to depend upon God to change hearts, and then to glory in Him as He does so. You see, if it was up to me, that would be horrible. Because I can't change anybody's heart. But he can, and he does. It gives us understanding of our role in this. We won't get burdened down with manipulations and tactics that find no basis in Scripture. Instead, we'll pray, we'll preach, we'll praise the God who is saving his people, and incredibly, by his wisdom and providence, using those whom he saved as mouthpieces to proclaim the message of the gospel to others. You see, this doctrine will afford matter for praise, reverence, and admiration of God. It will cause us to become even more deeply humble and diligent as we consider what God has actually done in saving us. In the present text, what has God said regarding the elect? He says, these ones whom he's called out of darkness into his marvelous light, these ones who he's given life to, these ones who he loved while they were enemies, these ones whom he loved while they were sinners through and through, these ones, now all of a sudden it makes sense. Why does God show care and compassion for the elect? Because he always has. He has an everlasting love for them, a hested love, never failing, never ending, never giving up love. He cares about his children. Yes, he cares about all that he's created, but he has a special love, a special care for his children. And he won't allow these hardships and tribulations to go beyond what he has measured them to be. They're going to be cut short for the very reason why God starts and stops trials in our own life. He gives us what he has equipped us to handle. And he doesn't give us anything other than what he's equipped us to handle. Our God has his eyes on his children. and He's working all things together for their good and for his glory. That means that he orders both small events and big events with his elect in mind. You know, when the president makes a decision, he might 
think for a moment, oh, how's this going to affect my popularity polls or how's it going to affect, you know, affect general people? You might think in those kinds of terms at the times. Hopefully he makes decisions on the basis of what's good for the nation. But there's no possible way that he can consider how each decision will impact each individual. He doesn't have that sort of ability. Yet our God has that sort of consideration. He thinks about how every trial and circumstance and difficulty will affect each and every one of his children. And he's weaving it all together for their good and his glory. At the end of the day, this is how it's going to be. We who are ripe for judgment are called to flee to the place of safety. Or else we'll be swept up in the righteous wrath of God. What we need is a miraculous deliverance. And this God has accomplished. But it came at the expense of his own son. We're provided a refuge. We are given a rock to run to. Because Jesus was willing to take God's wrath. On our account. It was his willingness to absorb God's wrath on behalf of the elect that provides them with forgiveness and safety. You see, we can face great tribulation because we have one who has suffered in our place and he rescued us from the wrath to come. Not hypothetically, but really. He really rescued his children from the wrath to come. And he did so when he saw the writing on the wall. And he saw his impending death coming. He set his face like a flint, not to run from it, but to travel toward it. And when he declared in prayer to God his Father, right before this happened, and he said, if this cup can pass from me, so be it, but not my will, but your will be done. You see, the reason why we can find safety in Jesus, the reason why we can flee to him and find salvation, is because he rather than fleeing from God's wrath, took it upon himself. He suffered in the place of those who call out to him for help. For him, there was no evading God's wrath. He came with the very purpose of suffering it in full, so that those who run to him can find life and be saved. This is what fuels our present living and our expectant longing for His return, because we know we've been granted eternal life and a place with God for all eternity. And as we'll see in the following verses, in weeks ahead, tribulation and trials, hardships and pain and suffering are not the end of the story. Oh no, the best is yet to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your marvelous sovereignty and your marvelous care. We know you are able and we know that you love. And we're so thankful for those realities. We're thankful for who you are and for what you've done. Lord, as we have contemplated these truths today, I pray that you would give us perseverance in the present and with whatever trials you have planned for us to encounter perhaps that we're undergoing right now or are still yet to come, I pray that you would just continue to give us grace and strength to persevere through these things. That our testimony for you would be clear to a watching world. And that you would use it for our good and 
bring to yourself glory as a result. And as we think about the culmination of history and you wrapping all of this up together, we who are your children definitely agree on this, that you, at the end of all of this, will return. And we look forward to your blessed return. You came the first time in humility, but when you return the second time, it will be in glory. And we look forward to your blessed coming. Thank you for your first coming by which we can be saved. And thank you that as a result, we look forward now to your second. Pray this in Jesus' name.